Is this for credits? The NZATE podcast. Welcome along to this week's Is This for Credits? And we know we're well into the year's work when I'm now talking to Philly as she's on her way home in the car. How are things? I'm, I'm good. I'm not actually on the way home. I've been home and now I'm on my way to the airport to go down to Wellington because tomorrow morning I'm meeting up with a couple of people to design the content for the 2022 NZATE workshop, which you're going to end up doing. So, um, I hope it's not awful, Chris, because you're going to be the one that's standing up and presenting it in parts of the country. I know it'll be great. I've seen work you've done before, and I've loved it. In fact, it's such a pleasure to be able to um, just have the work given to you. Sometimes it's so difficult, though. Sometimes it doesn't work, but it seems in the past, I think, we think similarly. So it's, it's helpful when people with like minds are designing resources that you have to use. But we're looking at how to teach language to students in year nine and ten with the new standards in 2024 in mind so that we're not just replicating NCA level one in year 10 and year nine just with slightly lower expectations with some incredible practitioners tomorrow so hopefully they've got some awesome ideas around how we might teach language in in new and exciting ways so stay tuned for that sounds great i can't wait to see what you come up with and this podcast has some pretty amazing content doesn't it we were so lucky to spend some time with well-beings um, and have as totally expected such a rich stimulating conversation with him around just education and teaching in general I think but also writing and things that are quite specific to the English curriculum Uh, and it was just such a wonderful chat I was lucky to go to his house the day after as well and kind of continue that conversation um, and and develop that friendship further so it's just been such a wonderful week being able to talk with such incredible people I was lucky also earlier today to meet with Glenn Colhoun and that video will be posted to the Enzate Facebook page and, and shared around. So people should be looking out for that if they teach his poetry. So I'm just ending the week on an absolute high. Well, it hasn't finished yet, but tomorrow I'll be ending the week on an absolute high, having worked with some amazing people through the week. And it's interesting, having had those conversations, that you're now going into the development of professional development materials. I bet it will inform what you do. Yeah, absolutely. It, it can't not inform. And what what amazing people to sort of be, be drawing on, well-beings and Glenn Colhoun to be feeding into how we might best teach writing to, to junior students. So hopefully I can pull from some of that genius, as Welby was saying, and and um, start to weave that in through some of that content tomorrow. Visited by genius. (laughs) I loved that. I also, thinking about that conversation, I'm still wondering, I I wanted to critically engage with his ideas, but I was worried I came across as almost attacking them. No, you didn't. I think it was really interesting because I was observing the conversation between both of you take place. And whilst you're approaching the same topic from different perspectives, I think you were being an intentional in interrogating where he was coming from, you know, and I think that's a something that you can only do when you really respect somebody. You, you don't just take mm. people's advice without some kind of criticality, and I think it was uh, well received, and I think you were so gracious at the end of that conversation as well by, you know, thanking Welby for allowing you to interrogate his thinking like that. It was a really interesting dynamic mm. to, to sit back and watch, though. 
I was thinking about for our podcast how we're speaking for a lot of English teachers mm. and I want to sort of think of the things that English teachers are concerned with in the conversations. Yeah, and I think you did a really good job of representing that and representing a range of different perspectives of practice in your conversation with Welby. Oh, great. Well, thank you for that reassurance. And you used lots of big words too, so huh. I sat back and I was like, whoa, these guys are so smart. <laughs> I was well, really impressed and slightly intimidated. Oh, please don't. <laughs> I think that's probably all we need to do to introduce this. I also yeah. have in my yeah. pocket that wonderful audio of that short conversation between you and your student about the value of English. So we'll include that too. Yeah, I thought he was going to throw me over the, uh, under the bus because last year he, he talked about how I um, manipulated blackmailed and boss bitched or something to, to make him love English. And it was, mm. it, it was real funny about it. And I was expecting him to pull something <laughs> um, similarly hilarious out of his backside, but it ended up being very thoughtful and yeah it was a beautiful response good old charlie was a beautiful response i love that and i think that's the first step in our moves towards bringing more of a plurality of voices to the podcast yeah, so i look yeah. forward to everyone's response to that yeah cool yeah. awesome well good luck tomorrow thanks mate i'll let you know how we go charlie what is english to you as a subject English as a subject for me is... Dull. No, it's not dull. <laughs> I, spend, I spend most of my time writing for English. Whenever I'm doing a subject, I'm thinking about what I've learned in English. Oh, yeah. To write essays and stuff. And I do love writing. Yeah. And English as a subject is a way for me to communicate my ideas that I have if it's something I've thought about for a long time or something that I've thought about maybe once mm. or just... A, random topic that I thought of at three in the morning when I'm laying in bed. It's just a way for me to communicate those ideas that I thought no one would hear and put them onto paper and then hand it in and then use that for my education. So it helps me give ideas that I thought would have no worth actually have meaning. You don't think of like doing English outside of school. You can't think of any like um, careers or pathways apart from being an English teacher or an English professor. But no when you, offense, you know. Yeah, <laughs> no offense. <laughs> but, when, but when you do think about it, English is like the groundworks for every single subject that involves communication and writing and anything to do with communicating ideas or passing along knowledge. So like you may think reporting is more to do with going out into the world and giving a speech, but you need to know how to write what you're going to say and you need to know how to articulate that professionally quickly and on like a news reading level and then there's subjects like or there's careers where you're going to go in and you need to know how to write but then you don't need to express that but you need to know how to express that even better than what you do with reporting and then there's one where you need a free ball and then pretty much in every sort of career there's always going to be some paperwork and you need to know how to do that at a professional standard and without English I would know nothing and if I didn't do English in about all of my written subjects my grades would have dropped and I would have lost interest because when I do a subject if I'm not I like to persevere but if I'm not getting if I don't see any progress I will just immediately lose interest so English has helped me achieve a higher standard for myself and set that standard even higher as I go along.
Kia ora tato. welcome along. Today we are joined by the inspirer, thought leader, uh, provocateur, director, incredible artist I've recently just found out and hopefully I can say my friend Welby Ings. And the reason we reached out to Welby for this episode was with uh, COVID in mind, but particularly because we're all pretty sick of talking about that, to be honest, the impact of COVID on creativity. We may have felt over recent weeks, potentially at the end of last year, that we were starting to dry up when it was coming to creative reserves. Um, and I was interested in Welby's thoughts on this. So handing over to you, Welby, what, what are your thoughts on the impact of this COVID experience on creativity? I'm quite an optimistic guy. I tend to look at, at what we see challenging as challenging situations as um, what is there that could be fertile in here that could grow something. So although, you know, I experienced the same thing, I experienced the lack of intimacy where you can call something, you know, f- FaceTime or you can call something, you can have whatever language you want. But in fact, we are social beings in a way that transcends the Zoom carousel. There's something more to us. But at the same time, I watched the, the, the COVID lockdowns especially unfold with a curious awareness of heightened creativity. I think that one of the difficulties we face as teachers is that we often are positioned as, or we allow ourselves to be positioned as the sole agent in education. But in fact, we are only a small part of a wider world. So if you, to put it in real terms, they're at, they're at school in class for probably around about six hours a day. Then for eight hours of the day, they're awake and learning elsewhere. That elsewhere is the world where they learned their first language, where they actually learned and expanded reading. So this self-teaching realm suddenly expanded and it took into, it reached into the realm of formal schooling. And that was by necessity. And we were there without a roadmap. So anxiously, uh, parents, communities, students and schools were confronted with the idea that there might be something negative happening here. There might be the loss of something. So teachers, because oftentimes in our, in our teaching, we are, are ritualized into an idea of um, what we have to do is produce bodies of recallable and usable knowledge that can be demonstrated in some kind of testing regime. And if we do that, then there's been learning going on. But in fact, what people witnessed was learning beyond time. So learning that didn't happen divided by a bell and three quarters of an hour or an hour and a half or whatever. It wasn't defined by disciplines. Um, It wasn't driven by assessment. And that it relied on a broader spectrum of social intimacies. So the lockdown with COVID actually gave us insight into something that is much more descriptive of that other realm, the self-teaching realm. So the positive takeaway I take from that is that especially parents who had been, in most cases, the parents that we, whose kids we teach have been shaped by a neoliberal education. That's the one they came through, which was very predicated on outputs and being measured against other people or against imagined descriptors of behavior. It believed in ideas like average. And and so they were confronted there on very intimate levels of their kids expanding this learning from the other realm 
into the space of teaching. And then teachers try to reach into that other realm, uh, reach into homes and go, so what can we do? Because many of the things we have in place in our classrooms aren't here at the moment. What was really interesting that surfaced was something that I see in, when I started teaching, I started teaching, um, they were five-year-old kids. So I saw it there and I see it with my PhD students. And that's where large, large amounts of formal education, in fact, with PhDs, all of it, are project-driven and they reach beyond discipline. They're not concerned with discipline. So when we talk about English, my understanding of English has been one of the primary modes we use to communicate. And so I think that because we're culturally shaped by language, I think English dictates the way we read a painting, the way we navigate the signs in an airport, the way we feel a piece of music. So my, my idea of English is not set to, here's the short story we're going to study, here's the two poems by Wilfred Owen, and here's the Shakespeare play. I think it's... Uh, it oh, comes gosh, to- I know what two poems you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and with that view, which I see as, 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 as rich and expansive, we have a situation where people learn driven by a question. I don't think the mark of learning is... How you answer is how many people answer something. I think it is in how many questions are asked. And so if you set up open environments where people are asking questions, then they're more likely to have fruitful learning. So what this means is, if we come back to your question, here we sit in, in education providers with a social responsibility and, and a salary to say we will help educate. And we had and the ground shifted underneath us. And so what I saw flourishing right across the education sector were not the little worksheets sent out to go do the stuff and then I'll send it in and I'll mark it. But the broader projects like they, the teacher just sent home a thing, said, at home, find something that people need doing that you can help with and then make a documentary about it. Yeah. So one of the, one of the kids mm. helped his dad change the oil on the car. Uh, one of my nieces did it as a, like a little graphic novel. And so what it was, it, it used, it, what it was really saying is experience something and do good with it and then tell the story of that in an articulate way. Yeah, and it's redefining that context of success, isn't it? The interesting thing was that there wasn't a mark given out for this. What was asked was they said to the, the person who was doing it, the student who was doing it, if you were going to select this to show this to people, what do you think are its three best qualities? And if you had another six weeks or two weeks, what would you change and why? So here you've got a, 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 a response that is much more like what goes on inside our heads when we create stuff with language. And it's, it's not without borders. The borders are necessities and limitations of materials and space, and, but it's navigated without a set of descript, imagined descriptors sitting at the front of it. And so when we do a, a, something like a master's thesis or PhD thesis, it's the same. We have a question. We think about the methodology. We think about how could we do this that will heighten the chances of discovery, will heighten my ability to spot bullshit, criticality. But the interesting thing is we reserve these two, this approach for early childhood and the very first years of teaching and for the PhD and master's. And yet in between, we ritualize things down into something that is um, defined space and time, defined by discipline, 
and measured by assessment. It's interesting because tertiary can be so much more instructional and there's still that kind of lecturer-centric andragogical approach. How does that sit with you? So a couple of things that blew stuff out of the water. They couldn't have exams anymore. And so that was a major seismic shift in much tertiary education. Although I'd have to say, in 20 years of working in uh, departments of design and uh, business, we haven't used examinations for 20 years. That system of putting people into a hall and asking them in three hours to spit out a series of performances, we haven't used. It's not So the idea that you go to university and there will be a lecturer there and then they will disseminate great pearls of wisdom, you will try and construct them into a necklace that looks good under light for three hours and show off just how ornamented you are, and then you're going to get a mark for it. That is sitting there in some of the corridors of the ivory tower. But actually, when you look at the new disciplines that came into the academy, hotel and tourism, sports medicine, design, business studies, nowhere near, nowhere near, because the rituals are different. These disciplines came up off the street into the academy. They didn't come out of the scriptoria or the developments at the beginning of the 19th century with the rise of the sciences and the social sciences. And so their approach is different. And many of the kids that we teach go into those from communication studies. And the simple point is, with assessment, what you're trying to work out is what is actually understood, not what is performed, what is understood. So, and how do I need to shape this, lear, these learning activities to get people having a richer experience of it? Giving the space for very different kinds of thinkers to demonstrate how well they solve problems. So, so uh, uh, let me give you a concrete point. Um, I'm I'm kind of just st- starting a new book at the moment because I've I've become really interested in the kinds of intelligence that don't profile or don't get rewarded well in conventional schooling. And one of these that I'm trying to get my head around at the moment is what I would call non-linear intelligence. So if you have a look, generally our education system is predicated on rewarding people who can think or tell the story in a line. So look at the structure of our essay. That is permeates most things. It says, have an introduction, thought one leads to thought two, to, there'll be all these segues through, and then you'll conclude. But actually, when I'm working with people who are designing software or working very creatively, many of them don't think in a line. They think in a kind of a convoluted matrix, a network that doesn't even sit on a single plane. And so discussion, in discussion, that thinking can communicate because you can jump from ideas. But we force so deeply, we force thinking into linear displays that people either have to lie or create linear narratives of something which is not their thinking process. Is that a Western epistemology? I worked up in Shanghai for the Education Commission up there around issues of creativity, and I found that the Western thing is less, it it is often more linear, but what is really clear is that it narrows down, it follows a rational line towards narrowing down and finding pertinence rather than an expansive outreaching to go, what is the field and what could be gathered, not necessarily in a linear way. Now, that's a very broad sweep, I know, but I it helped me understand, I, I'll be really honest, my racist attitudes when I went up to China pretending I had none, in the back of my mind was, oh, maybe these kids are all going to copy 
and maybe they won't think originally. And, um, you know, maybe, and that was rubbish. It was rubbish. They were some of the most metaphorical thinkers I'd ever encountered. And it took me a couple of years to understand what was going on. And I realized that so long as you could build trust, the general view was to reach out into a very wide spectrum and, and look across a wide field. So those kinds of thinkers get have to learn how to lie or reconstruct thought rather than just work with it. They have to learn to reconstruct work thought when they come into an education system that claims to offer international education but doesn't. It offers Western education to international students. There's a few things that come up challenging vectors on some of the statements you've made. So, for example, one of the assumptions that's made when you're talking about assessment at the moment is that its purpose is to learn about the learner. But we're all pretty aware, aren't we, that assessment as a system has a lot of other purposes. It's put to a lot of other purposes. So, for example, the education system in New Zealand uses assessment to assess the performance of the system and the performance of the agents in the system, not necessarily just the performance of the students. And so they're bringing into that expectations that the assessments are able to be compared to each other so that there's some kind of evaluation able to be made about the performance of various parts of the system, whether it's a school or a teacher or a uh, subject pedagogy. I'm interested in the dismissal of the notion of something like an essay as a form of assessment, because if, for example, we say that we're looking towards building in students the ability to operate in abstract ways, cognitively abstract ways, or if we're looking at students being able to function in language, then one way to assess whether they're capable of those things is to ask them to do a specific defined task within that greater realm. It doesn't mean that the teaching has to be limited to that. And I think one of our failures as a system is perhaps that we keep teaching to these assessments. I think people who are functioning really well in language won't necessarily find it too difficult to put a complex mass of knowledge into a linear order because that's a cognitive process. It's a reasoning process, which is something I think we do want our students to become fluent in. And so if we think in English we're teaching language and reasoning, then the production of an essay is a reasonable formula for determining whether the students are progressing in that. So I don't agree. Um, uh, but that's, that's fine. That's fine. The reason is I think if we use an account, if we say to give an account of something, that is a more expansive way of looking at it. The essay is a formal construct, is a formal construct. And it asks, and it's very good for demonstrating the ability to place thinking or knowledge or reasoning in a particular format, but it is a format. So when we say uh, give an account of, you can have people, so for instance, I've got a, a student at the moment who's creating a virtual reality graphic novel where you can move all over the place. Kids grew up with games where you got to the end of something and you had two choices and you can move. They don't necessarily move completely linear. In fact, if you have a look at play, how kids play, the stories that they play out are responsive to the moment. They jump all over the place. I think the ability to articulate an account of something is a more expansive way of thinking. Don't get me wrong. I think the ability to write an essay or no, to offer a linear account is a useful skill. If I have to write a complaint to my power provider, 
I know that their attention span is not going to be long because they don't want to see this complaint. So I will, I will use the skills that I have learned with English to make, the, make it very clear in a short amount of time and in there subtly assert some kind of authority or some kind of sense that I'm not going to be walked over with this. So I'm not saying that skill's not useful. What I'm saying is if we broaden the idea so we understand that we might develop linear thinking, but we might also develop nonlinear or under or gain an appreciation that some thinking processes are nonlinear. Uh, let me give you another example. I go to a I go to an exhibition of paintings. I sit inside a painting, and that painting talks to me, and I talk to that painting in my mind. But that may not be linear. There may be flickers of impression and other flickers of impressions that are forming a, a network of little charges in there. And I come away with an appreciation of that. Now, I may give an account of that in a linear fashion to somebody when I go, I saw this painting that said this and this and this and this. But actually, my encounter with it might not have been linear at all. And so when we get people who are... Um, if we understand a word that kind of dropped into the vernacular world was matrix. Okay. If we understand that some things might not be a single line might actually be multiple. And then we start pulling that into the thing of going, I'm not going to ask you for a linear, for an account of how you did this. First I did this, then I did this, then I did this. What I want you to do is be able to provide some way of showing how you increase the chances of discovery, how you could work out what wasn't working. I'll I, I tell you where I've, why I've come to this point. I had a, a candidate who I would say was visited by genius a great deal more than I am, very, very gifted, who could who managed to design a system of software that could record human speech and turn it into objects. But when it came to when it came to write his thesis, he couldn't do it. And his thinking process at, at its most complex and, and I would say, beautiful was such that it couldn't translate. So he had a choice. He either had to lie or say, I can't use a thesis to fit. The, I can't use the, con the structure of the thesis to fit what I've done. And I see pieces of this in education that I really admire. Things like when people put in portfolios of work, there was a history teacher at school whose class I, damn it, didn't get into who said to them, we're studying, you know, the origins of the First World War, this, 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 and this. What we're going to do is I want you to start, um, you're going to put in a portfolio of work, and the first one is I want you to explain what history is from your perspective using accounts from your history. You can do it on an audio recording. You can um, make a play about it. You can, do, you can do whatever you want to. And I was dying to do the painting of that. I was dying to do the painting. One guy wrote the piece of music of it. But it requires a very, a very disobedient teacher who has to work against the grain of a system that has valued certain ways of thinking uncritically. I don't mean that it's just assumed that because they're there and they may appear to serve the purposes of the education system at the time that they are right. What I'm not, what I'm not saying is throw it all out. What I'm saying is, you know, kia kaha, um, um, wonderful, wonderful, every time you make some small space to recognize this other thing. That's a wonderful thing, you know, and, and the more that we, the reason you do these podcasts, you know, and the reason that we do any of this stuff is we, we care about the health, the, the intellectual and creative health of our country. We care about that. 
you know, and so we will find whatever way works. And if there are multiple ways, and I would argue there are multiple ways, then our, then our approach is richer for the, the expansion of approaches and understandings we might take to knowledge. It's interesting that we're using a linear form to communicate this. And I'm drawing attention to that because while I actually have no disagreement with anything you're saying, I still value some of these conventional means of communication. So I'm not negating this. Yeah, because I think one of the reasons that convention is important beyond you know submission to the system is standardization doesn't just occur because people are unimaginative. It also occurs in order for everybody to be able to participate in a universal conversation. So if we have a common skill in the recruitment of language to organize our ideas in order to convey these to each other, and then we're able to enter a conversation, which is something also I want for my students. I want them to be able to participate and be confident and fluent in a conversation with a, a wide array of different thinkers. And sometimes we use these standard forms for that. Those standard forms, though, what happens to those people um, who are oppressed by that? You know, like, is that standard form exclusive? And exclusive to the majority. It definitely is. And of course, you know, Welby, you're talking about exceptional people and how the system absolutely does exclude them. But no, 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 no. I am not talking about exceptional people. Well, you're characterizing them as exceptional. My job is to try and understand the beauty of thought of everybody that I get to work with. So then you probably are visited by genius as often as that other. No, no, no. That is how we negate. Um, alternative thinking by making it special and tokenistic. Well, I'm just re I'm using your words here. When I was in a prefab at Te Aumutu College in the lowest class because I was thick and was a problem learner, I was the same, I still had the same brain that's sitting inside me now. So when I use the word genius, I use it in the Greek form, the original form. The a person is not a genius. Genius visits people. It visits us sometimes. So a genius comes across and, and will sit with you sometimes. I don't believe that anybody is uniformly visited by genius. It's certainly not been my experience. But I do believe in, the, in that genius does visit people. And I, I know I'm using a metaphorical thing to try and explain something. You're in good company with English teachers using metaphor to explain something. Right. <laughs> I know. That, that's it. That's cool yeah. so, so if we – so I don't hold – with you can do everything. I think there are some things that are, some people have talents. They just do. I'm not musical. In my last film, I worked with the guy who did the com composition. I was in awe of his ability to synthesize the world of the film and create music for it. Absolutely in awe. And I'm really glad I don't have that ability because it taught me to appreciate other abilities that I do have as wonderful, as full of wonder. Surely we want to think about education in a way where some of the assumptions, the goodness of them can be preserved, but they can also be broadened so that other thinkers like that guy who could not do the thesis would still have a pathway in the world. I certainly have seen the impact of people who come through into a world where they're going to navigate without a roadmap who have confidence enough to know that there's not one pathway across that field and that they are capable of working something out. You asked me to talk about the dimension of creativity. We have uh, 
quite uh, robust thinking around rational and linearity. So I'm representing another dimension. I'm not saying that it is to roll out and take over or to, to, to marginalise what is. What I'm saying is, isn't it worth considering that there might be ways that other ways that can be used so that people are not working oppositionally between their two realms, the realm of self-learning and the realm of formal education. I would agree. I also agree that if we are courageous about doing that and we introduce those opportunities in young people's education, that there are benefits that are relational about that. I think about a student who we were watching the film Donnie Darko. I set them the task of building a three-dimensional representation of how time works in that film to submit as an assessed piece. And I can still remember some of the models that I got. One was this massive clock with a jelly placed on its face, things like that. And the thing about that, in relation to that student, we're still in contact. I think that the opportunity through that moment wasn't just about them expressing their way of seeing things in a physical form. It was also about me respecting their reality and being interested in it. And I think that the relational aspect of that led to that student also writing good essays, if that makes sense, because they started to really engage with also the conventional aspects of the learning. So I I see the value in this, but I, I definitely also see these things as mutually supportive rather than oppositional. Three times I've kind of tried to make that clear. I'm not trying to make this into a binary. I'm not trying to make, you know, when you asked me to come and, and, and share some conversation, it was around, well, what is this, you know, if you were to come in from this other lens, what might that look like? So those are contributions to the field. I'd say that you did more than um, respect that thinking of that, that learner. You actually validated something for them. You know, somebody that must have taken quite a courageous person to put jelly on the face of the clock and hand it in to somebody. They must have trusted you enough to to feel safe enough to try and show something that was that abstracted and away from the conventional. And in fact, it wasn't that. And I'm, I know you're not saying this, so I'm not. I'm not saying this is what you actually were meaning, but. The value in that was not that they could write great essays afterwards. The power in that was that a way of thinking was not only made valid for them, but was demonstrated to other people around them. That here was a here was somebody who grew a learning environment where something quite different would be. I mean, it would be questioned, of course, of course you do, because what would stop it just being a piece of posturing? But it would accept that there might be a way of representing knowledge that sits outside of of what might be conventionally constructed. So you've, give, you've given a couple of examples of this new way of working, which I think are really striking and exciting. I wonder, though, if we could give you more time to give some examples of a scenario of education that would fulfill this need that we have to be more creative in the way that we engage with learning and creative in the ways that we see learning represented in students. Do, do you have further thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you actually just gave an example of it. And what, what I mean is one way that seems to be an, uh, by creating projects that are, have a, a purpose, they address a question, but they don't say how the answer has to look. How, so, for instance, you go, what is the nature of terror? 
Or uh, let me give you another example, because I, I saw this actually in a uh, program in another institution where they said, take a conspiracy theory and unpack it. It's not going, there will be three marks for this or this, or you have to unpack it in a line, or you have to do it as an essay, or you must do it as a It says, take it and unpack it so that people can see into the dimensions of this thing. Now, that's quite advanced. But if you go, what makes people frightened in a story? And you go, that's the question. You might say, in five minutes, explain what makes people frightened when they watch a film. Now, it seems really broad, but what it does is it, it's not saying write an essay about it, so it doesn't predetermine the format, but it does ask the question that has to be addressed. So that's the same as when we do a thesis. So if we understand the word thesis meaning to position an idea, a thesis means I will put a thesis forward, I will put a positioned idea forward, and I will articulate that, I will discuss it. And if, I like the word discussion because it's, it might embrace the oral, it might embrace the written, it might use uh, image and text, it, might, it can be quite broad. But it's still the job to articulate that thing. So when, when we do projects for a wider variety of people to think in different ways and demonstrate those thinking processes to other people in a group, just thinking as English teachers, one of the things that we also do, in addition to create situations where students can follow a line of inquiry and explore an idea. So for example, my year 13s currently are exploring what a monster is, and there's lots of ways that they can do that. But we also teach writing. So one of the things that we have to do is actually not assess their understanding or knowledge of something, we have to teach the mechanism of writing and then assess their ability to use those mechanisms. So sometimes when we're asking students, say, to write an essay, it's about exercising language in a particular form. And the thing that's being assessed is the actual essay writing. I'm not saying that this is, that this is a binary and this should not be done and that's not validated because I'm opening some doors on some other stuff. But uh, it's interesting, in that statement, you used a term, line of inquiry. If you think about the phrase, that's how deeply embedded this, this idea of the linear approach to something is in, in language. Uh, and I can think of people who have been educated by secondary school teachers who I get to work with who are wonderful, wonderful thinkers. But they can, I can think of uh, one person at the moment. She's developing the, uh, a graphic novel for virtual reality. I, I can think of another person who's got a polyvocal narrative. So she's, she created a novel with three different um, saints telling the story, and each one gave a different theological position, and it was activated through AR technology. To get there, she had to work beyond the line, even though the final thing was a network of lines. So what I'm saying is that everything, I, I believe that many, many things that we, we deliver as, as teachers of communication, to open the door to something else doesn't make something else invalid. What it does is it broadens the range of ways that we not, might negotiate that. So, for instance, when Tatiana does her a poly, polyvocal novel, so she speaks three languages. She navigates between three languages. And I would argue navigates a richer system of thought construction as a result. But she can write in a linear way. She can pursue a linear thing. And because she can do that, she can also do polyvocal things. 
because she expands that into something that intersects. But then the person who reads that has choices as to which how they navigate it. But she also understands the construction of a collage as something that might not be linear, that might be navigated in a non-linear way. You know, she's somebody who constantly apologizes about her thinking. She constantly goes, look, this might sound stupid. She has the most beautiful, beautiful intellect. She integrates the ability to work linear with the ability to work in non-linear ways to design texts for a world that is increasingly familiar with following narratives in non-linear ways. All those contributions are useful to it. The only thing that's not useful is exclusivity or hierarchy, which says this must therefore have power over something else. You know, even on your worst day, on your worst day, the small thing you do that says to somebody, that's interesting, that's interesting, might be the only thing they're having to hold on to. You know, that, and that's why I believe that education is shaped by the, by the humanity of the relationships inside it, not by curriculum. The person, somehow that kid with the jelly and the clock face and the other people in that room, you know, we're only picking, we're only picking examples out of the sky trying to give image, illustrations of these things. That person, that happened because of a relationship with a human, with a teacher, who accepted, one, he shaped, in this case, he shaped a question that allowed for that. But then he also validated that by showing interest or care. And that can happen not by going, that's awesome, that's awesome, but asking questions of it. And so when you when you live on the, the fringe of, of formal learning, when you find somebody who tells you the truth, and shows genuine interest in the fact that there might be a way of thinking that you've got that is not the same as other people, you fall in love with them. Not necessarily with them as people, but with what they provide you. Because, and I come back to this term I used earlier, they make your intelligence visible again to you. As you guys have been talking, I've been jotting so many things down, and I think fundamentally we're all talking about exactly the same thing. Um, and on that as well, like when you've said, um, Welby, that you're not presenting things as, as being binary, it, it, it hasn't come across in conversation at all that, that that's the position that you've held. But some of the things I've written down here is that I, I wonder what it will be, what it would feel like for students to understand the relationship between how their thoughts are occurring in both linear and sort of non-linear ways. And then in understanding that, being able to sort of see your thoughts as they're occurring and and grab hold of them and attach language to that. And in that way, I guess, that learning is quite metacognitive, that you're starting to make sense of how you are um, seeing learning happen in front of you. And that's just the way that I sort of conceptualise it, that you've got all of these thoughts sort of escaping and you're, you're trying to validate them and articulate them. Um, and as a part of that, I mean, it's, it's our job to to support students understanding their own thinking through um, and a, a word that's popped up a couple of times is, is intimacy. And Chris, we were talking about inti- intimacy before um, you joined us, Welby, about about the, the masks that we're having to wear and how we're having to think differently about how we develop that intimacy with learners and um, how we develop these different strategies. And I think, Welby, you were talking about uh, that earlier in the day, but 
uh, sorry, in the conversation. So it's about that intimacy, about that listening, about asking the right questions to enable students to see their thoughts, to enable them to then attach language to that so that they feel empowered and validated and cared for um, and can make sense of and celebrate the way that they think, regardless of whether it's in a straight line or all over the shop. You know, and, and that is fundamental to what all of us are trying to do in whatever forms we're doing it in, whether it be through um, an essay or through a conversation. I, th- I think that was very articulate. Uh, if I can give a concrete example of this. So I've got a feature film in Europe at the moment. That feature film tells a linear story. So when you sit in the theatre in front of it, it's a story. It it doesn't, it's not, it disrupts time and it just, you know, there are elements of enigma in it, but it kind of tells a story. But the thinking process behind it was not linear and nor was the way it was shot. The construction of the thing is it's actually assembled or drawn into being in the real world is not linear. So, you know, I'm sitting down as a director with my actors going, where have you just been in the story? Because they're sitting out on a sand dune in Murawai, but they've just been in a boxing club four days ago. And so they're connecting emotionally back to, I just had a fight with my dad in the film. I'm not talking to him anymore, but I realize he's alcoholic and I've I drove home and there he was standing on the deck drinking again and there's nobody else at home and I'm riddled with guilt. You know, so they are connecting that to do that thing to be in the moment. So when we see the text at the end, it is not the result of a linear process all the way through. When I create worlds, I will make I make a lot of the props in my film. I draw a huge amount. And when I and then at the end, from a wall covered in stuff, I begin to write a screenplay. But I don't think writing a screenplay. I think by making stuff and going out and being in places. Now, um, I'm just using my, myself as an example. But And I'm not saying that everybody thinks like that. I understand that you, both of you would think differently. And, and if you're listening to this at the moment, you think differently. But the linear texts that we produce at the end of things don't necessarily come through linear process, processes of thinking. And what I'm saying is what amazing things when you get – educators who understand the process of getting to something may not be linear and find ways of resourcing that and affirming it and also questioning it, you know, interrogating it because just saying you're fabulous, you're wonderful is not, that's just like, like trying to shape something with fluffy gloves. It's not going to do anything. And that's, that's um, the irony I think is that all of this broad discussion is coming to, uh, it's sort of crystallizing a little bit. I mean, what will it, what will it mean for our learners in our classroom if that process of learning, that that messy part of the learning, is able to be articulated as clearly for learners in, in an empowering way as that final product? So, Welby, we might need some advice on that because the reason that a lot of teachers might recoil from doing things differently will be external factors, often fearfulness, anxiety about failing their students in the conventional sense, and also anxiety about being judged by all the onlookers to what they do. What's your advice? Okay, so I, I, I taught English. Um, I taught English at Taihepi College. I've taught history. I've taught art history. I've taught social studies. i taught workshop technology. And so the reality is that we're on the mat because you have anxious parents kids whose values about what is valuable in learning has been shaped by a a, a history of 
I need something to get through the exam. So my answer, the way I navigated it, and I'm not God, was to go work out what is the minimum I have to do to get that person safely through and tell them honestly, what is the minimum you have to do to get safe? If you want to safely get this, you want to get this mark, you want to get this whatever, I will show you what it will take to do that. But I will show you because at the same time, I know there's something else about you. I know there's something that sits beyond the examination. And, you know, at the end of it, the examination might open a door, but nobody's going to examine you very much anymore after you leave. They will ask you to think. They'll, they'll be looking at your thinking, but then that's not going to happen. So I'm going to try and do both with you, but I will teach you one because it's to make room for the other. Well, just to reinforce that, Philly in her Year 11 course is reducing the formal assessment to its bare minimum, allowing space for all sorts of other things to happen. Yeah, yeah. and we're ditching the external exam um, and the reason we're doing that is because we don't want to bias our teaching to a particular format. Absolutely. Um, and I think personally it's in sort of Absolutely. year 12 and year 13 or level 2 and level 3 where the, the analysis can become a lot richer and you can get some um, deeper responses even if it is uh, perhaps in some conventional uh, performances. That being said, I think there is actually a, a heck of a lot more creativity within the English curriculum and within NCA, within English as um then there is another subject area, so we're very, very lucky there. And I'm talking only normally about the last three years of secondary school. I'm not talking about the earlier years because they often were less constrained, and I found I got better learning happening in those. So for the last three, I worked out what are the ways that I can get you what is required and make some space. So I found things like saying, let's make the assessment one portfolio assessment at the end of the year. You might undertake six activities, pick five, and that's what will be examined at the end. And so I saw a history teacher do this. This is uh, the, the one that I really wished I'd been in the class, you know, where that they, and it was linear. It was a, a, each person wrote a book. It had the introductory thing about um, um, what is history. And then it wrote that they wrote a chapter about the origins of the First World War, a chapter, about, and they wrote these things as if they, and she said, I want you to write this as if you're telling a 16 year old who knows nothing about this. I, I still believe that assessment, meaning critical critical discussion about stuff, is hugely valuable. Another piece of advice I guess I'd add to this from my own experience, and I guess this is partly politics, but I, and I, it was reinforced enormously during lockdown, and that is that if you have anxieties about the fears that parents might have about what's happening in your classroom, one of the best uh, solutions to that is to invite them in. And during lockdown, we had a lot of parents in our classrooms by default because we were we were transmitting our classrooms into their homes. And the feedback that we got from that was often very positive. They could see a lot more of the richness of what occurred in a classroom and became less anxious about the outcomes because they were actually able to access it. And that is actually one of the an, another difference between primary and secondary education. Primary education does to some extent, have the doors open. Secondary, often choreographed by the teenagers themselves, the, the secondary doors are shut. And in terms of being courageous and doing things in new ways, I, I strongly believe in bringing everyone with you and sharing that experience as a way of empowering it. And my, I'm just going to add one final thing as well before we kind of come to a close as well. I think we have to trust ourselves as professionals 
to be able to get through the hoops that we need to get through or like as you were saying um well be like talking to students about like i'll keep you safe within the framework of this assessment but i want to create as much space as i can for that richer deeper learning and to support you being able to articulate that you know because often if you spend more time in that space you're going to find and i think this is what you were saying chris earlier perhaps as well that the performance in that linear way is actually going to be improved but as teachers we have to trust that we know that stuff you know we're going to get there we we don't have to spend our entire practice zoomed in on this we can deviate and and be in the abyss and pull back to that when it's appropriate and we will know our learners and we will know standards and assessments and the things by which we we may be assessed so do that stuff when you need to just in time and to a high standard but but spend time on the other side of the fence Uh, do you know uh, uh, i tried an experiment uh, a few years ago and i've actually just had a um, uh, one of the doctoral candidates at the moment she's just done the same thing too she interviewed students five years after they left school about Hmm. learning her environment the, the learning environment she and those kids shared and it's very interesting what shakes down five years later as having been relevant. Very interesting mm. stuff. Mm. And I mean, what sort of things came out? Not the essay, I bet. Belonging, belonging, excitement and wonder, um, um, humanity. So this is a technology teacher I'm talking about here. So it wasn't the dovetail joint and it wasn't knowing how to braise. The, um, the, the fact of uh, people learning how to work together with people who thought differently to you, that was probably the biggest one that kept surfacing was that I learned there that especially when they co-created something like a school production or something because she, she also was working with the kapahaka and a whole lot of other that, that I got to work with people who thought differently and together we created stuff. So stuff that was done because when they got out in the world, whether they ended up in a studio or a news team or a wherever, most of them were having to co-create. And so um, the, the, I come back to the, the kid with the clock and the jelly. And not I know it sounds a little la-la land. We always live example. We give examples and they sound extreme. But the truth is they did exist in the world too. But they are represented maybe of one part of a spectrum. But people... The simple point is there's no two people in a classroom or listening to this podcast who think the same way, whose brain process stuff the same way. And so they create differently. And so when you are in environments that enabled you to live in the environment of people thinking and solving problems in different ways, you get a richer experience of what it is to live in the world of thinking people. 